I learned a new phrase this week. I've got to read it carefully. Heteroparental superfecundation. Sounds awesome, right? Okay, a lady in Lydia, a lady called Lydia in ancient Greece, gave birth to twins. Here's the wrinkle two different fathers. Which is what heteroparental superfecundation means. Aren't you excited? The one, the one parent, the one father was her husband. The other was the Greek god Zeus, who appeared and raped her in the form of a swan. Don't ask. It's Greek. I don't know. Um, Castor was the mortal son, and Polu was the immortal son. Um, they also, incidentally, had twin sisters. I think they were just normal twin sisters. Um, one of them was one of those twins was Helen of Troy, who we came across about I don't know a month ago, six weeks ago. Um, in fact, when she was locked up in Troy, she was hoping that her two brothers would be amongst those who would come to rescue her, and they never arrived. Partly because they were with Jason and the Argonauts. Googled it. Um, Anyway, one being mortal, the other being immortal, was a bit of an issue for the two brothers. And so the son of Zeus spoke to his father and said, Can I share my immortality with my brother? Zeus agreed, and they were transformed into the constellation of the twins, which you may know as Gemini. Hmm. So, when you go outside and look at the stars tonight and spot Gemini up there, ask Dave, he'll probably be able to tell you where they are. Just know that you are not looking at balls of burning gas hundreds of light years away. You're looking at Castor and Polly. Isn't that exciting? Very. (laughs) Do you want me to close in prayer and you can go home now? I've learned stuff. Yay! For various reasons, they became the patron of sailors, and we will come across them this morning in Acts chapter 28. We are in the final chapter. In fact, we're ending Acts today. After almost a year, I guess. So, if you'd like to follow with me, uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found... So there's been a shipwreck. They got washed onto the shore. They don't know where they are. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly to fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, 
and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollu. Ah. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews, and when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with these chains. And they replied, We haven't received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. And so they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and came in even larger numbers to the place he was staying. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through the pro Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly even hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I should point out that my sister lives on the island of Malta. She moved there about five or six years ago, partly as a result of Brexit. She just did not want to live in an island that was you know, all nationalistic, uh, but also because she's South African and just went, I am tired of spending 20 years in grey and rain and miserable. I want to be where the sun is. And so she's lived in Malta for the last 20 years. Unlike Paul, who experienced cold and rain, she has largely enjoyed sunshine and blue skies for the last five, six years and has loved every moment of living on Malta. She's now looking to move to Spain because Malta is a little bit isolated and it's a little bit difficult to get places, but there we go. Um, I'm not sure if the island is still filled with barbarians, though, um, because although we read here the islanders showed us unusual kindness, if you've got an old King James version, you might find the barbarians. Um, that's what it is. And barbarians, the, the, the Greeks 
See, the Greeks decided that anyone who couldn't speak Greek, they just made random noises that went bah, 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 bah. And so they just called them barbarians because that was what sound, it's the word sounded like in their ears. So a barbarian is literally someone who goes bah, bah. So sheep are barbarians, I guess. I don't know. Um, so they were, in, in the original Greek, they're actually called barbarians, but it doesn't mean that they were uncivilized. It just means they didn't speak Greek. That's all. We started this year with a picture. This is the picture there coming. No, not that one. Um, and maybe can someone just switch these lights off so we can maybe see the picture a little bit better. Um, I don't know how many of you actually remember this picture. I've tried to keep bringing it up over the year as we've gone because this is, a, in, in essence, what we're all about, what as Christians we're about, what every church is actually about. And we started off at the beginning of this year talking about the four loves. So I know it's up on the screen so you can probably read it, but you know, out of memory, what's at the top? We love God. Remember, love. So these are the commands, the specific commands that Jesus gave to us regarding what we should love. And we're called, first of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We're called to love God. And that, that has some reference to what we worship and how we worship, right? So we're to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. At the bottom of that picture, what are we to love? Love one another. Jesus with his disciples says, this is the command that I'm leaving with you, that you love one another. We are commanded to love one another together as the church. And that speaks to a sense of community, that we're called to gather in community with one another. Jesus also um, was t commanded us to, to love someone else. Not only do we love God and to love one another, but we also to love our, love our neighbors. And that, he, he, he used the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate who my neighbor might be. And that speaks to us in acts of mercy. We are to exercise acts of mercy to those who need it and those in need. And finally, although we're not specifically commanded to love, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and sends us to do the same on mission, we're to love the world. So we're to love, love the Lord with all our hearts. We're to love one another in community. We're to love our neighbors. And we're to love the world with the gospel. And at the very center of that, you, the question to ask is, well, what motivates us? What drives us to do those things? Why do we love God? Why should we love one another? What should motivate us to love our neighbors? And we could put in there things like, well, God commands us to, so we're just going to obey. So obedience to, to commands is what's in there. Uh, we could put in there, it's the law. God said it, I'm going to just have to do it, and I'm going to try really hard to do this properly. We could put in there a measure of guilt, that we do this because we feel guilty, because we're not quite good enough and not quite up to it. We, we could put in there that we, we do this because we want some kind of benefit and reward back from God. We want Him to pat, him out, pat us on our heads and say, well done. But none of those things will ultimately drive us to effectively do those things well. Each of those motivations will lead us to either um, live a life of pride, and self-righteousness, look how wonderful I am, look how well I do this, look how nicely I treat the people in the church, I even smile at the person behind me, I smile at the back of the head of the person in front of me, aren't I a nice person? 
Or we're devastated and broken because we just never can do enough. We just can't adequately love our neighbors. For every beggar that you give a loaf, a slice of bread to, there are ten others and you just can't do it. And so we're left either filled with self-righteous pride or, or ruined because I'm useless. But when we understand the gospel at the center, the gospel drives us. Suddenly we're not driven by self-righteous pride or arrogance or, or pity or whatever. We're driven by this understanding. We're called to love God because He first loved us. And when we understand that, He, he calls us to love one another. And he, he then tells His disciples about how He lays down His life for us. And if He has laid down His life for us, how can we not love our fellow believers within the, within the church? And when we understand that we were the ruined, broken man on the side of the road and that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, how can we not respond to need around us with mercy? And when we understand that he has been sent into the world for us, how can we not go? The gospel drives us in all of this. And what I want us to do in Acts chapter 28 this morning is to see all of those things again here, all in this chapter, this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Something to do with who and what we worship. And at first glance, this chapter doesn't really have a whole lot about worshipping God. There is at one point where Paul greets the guys coming from Rome and he gives thanks to God that they have come. But that's about it. But we do see in this passage a hint of what is worshipped. While they're trying to get a fire going on the beach because it's cold and wet, Paul grabs a pile of wood and he's about to dump it on the fire when out pops a snake and it bites him. And the islanders, when they see this happen, well, it reveals something of what they believe and what they understand. And their first assumption is that Paul is an escaped murderer that he managed to get away from the punishment of the sea, but he's not going to escape ultimate justice forever. Justice will catch up with you. A bit of the idea of karma going on there, I guess. But it's actually a revealing moment. It's a revealing moment in that it reveals that even the pagans have some sense of ultimate and final justice. And in order to have some sense of final justice, it means that there is some sense of what is right and what is wrong. And understanding that morality is not independently determined, but that there actually is a right and a wrong. Our modern world has changed that a little bit, haven't we? Because we, in our modern world, like to say that there is no final truth. There is no ultimate right and wrong, and that morality is really just a social construct. Now, now C.S. Lewis, writing 50 or 60 years ago, said, that's just bunk. That's the word he used. That's just absolute bunk. He says, just take away a person's biscuit and see how quickly he says, hey, that's not fair. The idea of there is no morality, it's just what you think is right or wrong, makes no sense. Because we all have within us somewhere this sense of it's fair, it's not fair, how dare you. 
And those, those who, who have managed to squash that in their lives, who've managed to get away from the it's not fair thing, are the very ones who prey on the rest of humankind. Because if there is no ultimate right and wrong, and if there is no one to answer to, then what stops me from doing whatever I like? So these islanders are here. Uh, well, before I get there, every child has that sense of it's not fair, right? If you've got children, especially if you've got two children, you've heard it's not fair. You've heard that, right? Mm, there's a few nods. In fact, the biggest child on the planet at the moment, I think, has to be, and someone's going to throw something at me just now, but save it later, has to be Russi. Okay? Russi Erasmus. Okay? He's just tweeting, it's not fair, it's not fair. And you know what, agree, disagree with him, whatever. He's actually proving the point. There is ultimate justice. And that ultimate justice is not found in the international rugby board or whatever, right? He recognizes that stuff isn't fair. So these islands here are hoping to see grand justice acted out before their eyes. If you get bitten by a snake, you're clearly a murderer. Anyone been bitten by a snake? Gee, am I the only one? I got bitten by a snake. Just a little one, just a brown, uh, just a little um, bush snake. Um, didn't get his teeth in, but he just went for my finger and, you know, but... I guess that means I'm a murderer. I don't know. Um, if that's the logic here, if you put my snake, you're a murderer. There. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. What am I admitting here? Paige also got like kind of, kind of, you know. So she's like a kind of murderer. Like I don't know. Anyway. Um, and so what happens is he gets bitten by the snake, and nothing happens. And so the islanders have to change the narrative. Because now their, their narrative, their story, their understanding of justice doesn't work. And so now they've got to rethink how this thing goes. Well, if it's not about justice, then he's a god. And now we need to worship him. And so Paul's just gone from murderer to god. He's been demonized and now he's idolized. Which is, again, not too different from our world. How quickly do people go from being demonized to being idolized? Or the other way around, idolized to being demonized. And again, it just, I just think it shows us how desperate human beings are to worship something. We want something on a podium. And so, in a church, we put the pastor on a pedestal. Especially when the pastor's sit down for a moment. Um, right, but, but, but how often is that the case in churches where the pastor is elevated to this position of, he's a god. Or politicians, or business people. It, it just reveals this universal truth that all people will worship something. And we will worship something that we believe will give us justice, that will give us what we deserve. And every human being has an upward arrow with love God up there somewhere, except, well, we, we, we choose our gods, don't we? And so the whole thing then becomes what will guarantee some measure of fairness for me in this life. 
And that's what I'll worship. That's what I'll pursue. What can I get or achieve that will level the pay, playing fields? Is it a relationship? Is it a better relationship? Is it a particular job, a particular level of income, a particular place to live, a, a particular level of comfort, a particular level of control over others? Whatever it is that we think will give us this place of life is now treating me fairly, that's our God. And as Christians, we know this, that only the God who created is worthy of worship. Because, partly because he is unchanging, unlike the islanders who can't figure out what's what. But more than that, only he can dispense ultimate and final justice. And not only justice, but mercy. And God, God sends his son. And he is condemned unjustly. And injustice is done to Jesus. And God did not tweet about it and say how unfair it is. Justice fell on him so that mercy would fall on us. We're all the escaped criminals. We're all murderers on the run. We've all been bitten by the snake. We all deserve ultimate justice. We all should swell up, fall down, and die. Not necessarily in that order, but we all should. Because none of us are innocent. But instead, the, the serpent has bitten the heel of Jesus, and he has crushed its head. And instead of dispensing justice, he offers us mercy. Secondly, what about community? What about the loving of one another? And what I find kind of interesting in this, in this chapter is, that, is, is, is exactly where it is that Paul finds community. And he finds it initially amongst the barbarians, amongst the islanders, right? He gets off the boat. Well, they, they drag themselves out of the ocean covered in seaweed. And the islanders show them unusual kindness. That's the word that Luke uses. Unusual kindness. A kindness beyond what was expected at the time. And I think it should be pointed out, I think you, 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 you get it, I guess, that these islanders are not Christians. They're just random pagan islanders. I mean, they're, they're worshipping Paul as a god. They're clearly not believers. And yet they're showing unusual kindness. They, they build a fire. And in the cold and the rain for these shipwrecked survivors who spend days out in the ocean, they're, they're offering some measure of comfort to these, to these shipwrecked people. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's a stupid question to ask, but, you know, have you ever found non-Christians to be nice? Yeah, I, I hope that you nod your head. Uh, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when I grew up in church, it was non-Christians are bad, evil, nasty, and you should stay as far away from them as possible. 
It was a bit like the Pharisees of the Old Testament, where if you get too close to bad people, they infect you, and you should just you should just hide away. You should just live in like a monastery of some sort and just never interact with those bad, nasty, uh, non-Christian people, which is weird. Um, I think we've got it that there are some really nice non-Christians out there in the world today, aren't there? And to be honest, if I was to go on a road trip down to Cape Town, I might actually choose to go with some non-Christians rather than some, um, yeah, just because they probably, they're often more fun. They're just sometimes nicer to be with. I don't know. Um, Muslims can be incredibly kind and incredibly generous. And atheists can show an unusual kindness even to God's people. You know, I, I think that sometimes the ones who are best able to help those who are coming out of a storm are often the non-Christians. If you're coming out of a storm, it might actually be helpful to go and visit a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Not always the best answer, but sometimes. And Paul finds that even more so when he goes and he's invited by Publius, the chief man, to go to his house. And there they stay in his house. There's 276 of them. I don't know if they've all gone to Publius' house, but that's kind of what it implies. And he's treated them hospitably for three days. That's quite an expense. And so again, Paul is finding community even in the hands of non-believers, which is great. But it's not just the non-believers where Paul finds community in, because they then leave the island, they get in a boat, they travel to, to this town of Putioli, which is just around the corner from Napoli. It's a little harbor on the edge of Italy. And there Paul finds a group of believers, a small church, and Paul and his friends go and spend a week with them, which is just an unusual thing. What does Julius the centurion think about this? You know, Paul, you're my prisoner, we're going to Rome, but you know what, have a week's holiday. Go hang out with your friends, do a bit of touring around, I'll see you later. Uh, I don't know, maybe Julius went with, I don't know. Um, but Paul now is able to spend some time in community, in Christian community, with fellow believers, with those who are together, under, united under the common head of Jesus. But it's what happens next that I think is great. They travel on, and they're on the edge of Rome, the outskirts of Rome, and believers from the big city travel out to meet Paul. And they travel about 80 kilometers to meet him, to meet Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. And I love how Luke says this. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Why do you think that? Here's what I think. Seems you're not going to answer. Because <laughs> you're scared to get the answer wrong. Here's what I think. that They're nearing the end of the journey. And for some of us, the end of the journey is exciting. right? You're driving from here to Cape Town. You're driving from here to... Jo no, not Joburg. Driving from here to Cape Town and it's exciting. right? You're getting closer and closer. And the closer you get, the more exciting it becomes. Or you've left Joburg, thank goodness, and driving to Durban and you begin to smell the sea air. The closer you get, the, the more excited you get, right? So Paul has traveled all this way to get to Rome. Is he excited the closer he gets to Rome? No. He's not, because it's not one of those trips. I think the closer he gets to the Rome, the more afraid, concerned, worried he becomes. 
It's one of those, you know, where, where three months ago you're going to Rome, you can kind of, you know, it's three months, but now I'm there. Now I can see the city. And it's what the city represents and what's going to happen to him there. Because Paul is going to Rome as a prisoner, and the closer he gets, the nearer he comes to his doom. It's a bit like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, right? The closer he gets to the mountain, the heavier the burden gets. I wonder if Paul's a bit like that, the closer he gets to Rome, because now, what's going to happen? Is he going to face Nero? Is he going to actually appear before Nero himself? And what, what's Nero going to say? What, what's that judge going to issue? Is he going to, is he going to say, off with your head? Is he going to lock him up in prison? Is it life prison sentence? Paul doesn't know what awaits him in Rome. It's kind of a nervous moment for him. And in this nervousness, in this concern, in this worry, Paul sees this group of people from the city of Rome who come out to meet him. And I think there is just a sense of, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. And it says, Luke says that just the sight of these people encouraged him. So do you remember what I said last week about encouragement? And I, sh- I really should check it up, but there's things that you don't want to check up in case they're wrong. So I'd rather be, be ignorant and, you know, I-, I wonder if encouragement really does mean just to build courage in others. Because that's kind of what encouragement does. It builds courage in others. And I can see Paul getting closer to Rome, feeling the burden, feeling the weight, feeling the concern, and seeing these believers from the city coming out and seeing them and being able to stand up and go, I'm not alone. And courage is built in Paul as he is encouraged to face whatever it is that he is about to face. And community does that for us. Community does that, knowing that we're not alone in whatever we face. Knowing that in an uncertain future, we're not standing alone. And it's why we need community within the church. Paul has enjoyed community on the island. He's enjoyed great hospitality from those folk. But the thing that encourages him, the thing that puts courage into him, is the community of the saints. That's why we're called to one love one another. And there are those in our church right now who are stepping out of the storm. Maybe there are others in our church who are standing on the outskirts of Rome looking at what's about to happen to them. And I know there are one or two in our church who have been saying recently, I think I'm going to die. And will you build courage in them by standing alongside them? Can we stand alongside Don? And Teresa, how do we do that? How do we stand alongside Don and Teresa? Can we stand alongside Brian and Glenda and build courage in them? Can we come around Jason and Mandy? Can we stand with Heather and John? Got a message from Graham this morning to say, sorry, we're not coming to church this morning. He said he's too old and his wife is too sick. Thanks, Graham. He had his birthday last week and now he thinks, I don't know. But, 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 <laughs> Liz is not well. Liz, Liz, Liz spent a week in hospital about a month ago, and she has some autoimmune arthro, something or other, just huge pain in her body. And so she's in bed today, dealing with pain. Can we stand alongside them and build courage in them? Anne Fun X spent 10 days in hospital a week ago. Can we stand alongside them? And there are so many others in the church, aren't there? 
who just need someone to stand alongside them to, to make the journey out of Rome. These guys traveled 80 kilometers. It's like doing the comrades. It would have taken, unless they ran, which I doubt they did, it would have taken them three days to do that trip. That's, that's, quite a, that's quite an ask, right? To give up three days to go out the city to wave at someone who's coming into the city. Could we just not wait? And I'm pretty sure that a few other guys probably, you know what, I, I, they'll get you. When they get you, I'll say hello. But there's a bunch of them who said, no, no, we're going to walk to them. We're going to meet them where they are. We stand with those in need, coming out the storm on the edge of Rome. Not leave them to stand alone, but stand with them and build courage in them. What about acts of mercy? pretty clear to see where the acts of mercy happen in the story, isn't it? When Paul and the survivors arrive at Publius's house uh, on Malta, they find that Publius's dad has got a fever, he's got dysentery. Some have suggested that what he has is Malta fever. Go figure, he's on Malta, you would think, right? Um, Malta fever is a fever that you get when you ingest the bacteria from drinking infected milk or eating infected cheese. It results in fever and lethargy, so who knows, maybe this is what the guy had. Paul goes in, prays for this unbeliever, the guy is healed. The result of that is that the rest of the island bring their sick and they were cured. And that's interesting that Paul heals this guy's father, but the other islanders come and they are cured. It's a different word. And in fact, the Greek word implies slowly cured, like, like a ham is slowly cured. Not quite the same. Um, but I wonder, I've got to make sure you're awake and with me, all right? Every now and then, I've just got to be really cheesy. Um, but I wonder if what's going on, going on here is if there's just a bit of a combo team here between Apostle Paul and Dr. Luke. Because that's who Luke is. He's a doctor. And a doctor has arrived on the island and the sick people are coming and they are being not healed, but cured. And sometimes God works miraculously and Paul prays for this guy's dad and he is healed. And I just wonder if other times God uses normal, ordinary means and just doesn't, doesn't heal the sick, but cures the sick. And I wonder if what we've got here is perhaps the first incidence of a missionary doctor at work. Luke, the missionary doctor, helping sick people on the island. And so while Paul is praying, Luke is cutting and sewing and applying and pushing in meds and doing whatever else that he needs to do. And there's no reference. What's interesting, I think, is there's no reference. Well, there kind of is. There's, there's not much reference to Paul and Luke getting anything out of this. I mean, in the end, they give them supplies to carry them on their way. And there is the act of hospitality. But there's no sense of Paul and, 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 and Luke, um, I don't know, getting paid for this. Or, or they're doing this out of kindness and as an act of mercy. And the other thing that's somewhat interesting is that there's no reference to a church being started on Malta. There is no reference, Luke makes no reference to, to people being saved and come to Jesus and born again. It, that may have happened, that may well have happened, but there's no reference to that here. There's no implication that this is what they're doing it for. You know, we'll, we'll cure you if you come to church next Sunday. There, there's none of that kind of bribery. It's just, they healed those who are sick. They just helped those in need. And sometimes that's all that God calls us to do, to just help those in need. Sometimes we feed hungry people because they're hungry. 
And because they're people in the image of God. And because we ourselves are starving beggars who have received grace at the hand of our God. And we hope that that leads to evangelism. We hope that leads to something else. But actually sometimes, sometimes we're good and nice to people just because it's good to be nice to people. And God calls us to love our neighbor through acts of mercy. Finally, this morning, and this is my main point. The rest has just been introduction to the main point. Now, now you can listen. Okay, now you can listen. This now, finally, the call to mission. And, and the key words in this chapter are actually these words buried in there in verse, I don't know, verse 14 or 15 or wherever it is. And we, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. It has been the aim of the entire book of Acts. It started in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And the book of Acts has been about this concentric rings spreading. Initially, it was just Jerusalem, and God had to organize persecution to get them to go out of that. And then it was into Judea, to the surrounding areas. And then someone had to be bold and do something very radical and go into Samaria. And from there, it's gone into Syria and up into Turkey. And we've been following Paul from Turkey into Greece. And the gospel has been spreading and spreading and spreading. And now we've come to Rome. And it's not to imply that the gospel had not been in Rome already or that Paul is the one who's going to bring it and change it. Because, get there in a moment. Well, get there now. There's been a Christian presence in Rome for a long time. For a couple of years at least. And in fact, Paul wrote the letter to Romans about two years prior to this. So there has been a Christian community there. But there is just this sense of the gospel of the kingdom is about to be presented to the very highest citizens of Rome. And what we're getting here is that the kingdom is invading the empire. And that the kingdom of God has arrived at the heart of the empire of Rome. That God's kingdom has invaded Rome's kingdom. And that there is a new king being proclaimed. At the very heart of the biggest empire in the world at the time. And this, this story, isn't, it's not the biography of Paul. It's why the story doesn't end with Paul in court, Paul before Nero, Paul tried, Paul executed. That didn't actually happen. He gets off, he gets, traveled, gets to travel to Spain for a couple of years, is rearrested, dumped in a dungeon, and in the dungeon he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then he's beheaded by mad Nero a couple of years later. But Luke doesn't record all that because this is not the biography of Paul. It's not about Paul, it's about the kingdom of God. And Paul arrives in Rome, is allowed to live in a private house and allowed to live under God. And after being there for just three days, he invites the local Jews to a meeting where he tells them, I'm in chains for the hope of Israel. And then invites them to spend, to, to come back. And he takes, wait for it, a whole day to tell them about the gospel. You've only been here an hour and 20 minutes. You can survive a bit longer. And there are some interesting words that Paul uses in explaining to them the gospel. He explains, he persuades, and he convinces his audience. And again, in older versions, there are slightly different words. He expounds, is the first word he uses. He expounds. He opens the Bible and says, 
This is what the gospel of the kingdom is about. He simply takes the Bible and says, this is what the Bible says. Let me show you what the Bible says. Paul hasn't come with a few random thoughts and, and a couple of verses to prop up his argument. He's come and he starts off by saying, this is what the Bible says. I'm opening the Bible to you. It's what any good preacher is meant to do. To open the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible means. But he doesn't just stop with, this is what the Bible says. He then tries to persuade them as well. He reasons with them. There is a logic to what Paul says. It's not just the Bible says, that's it. It's the Bible says, and what the Bible says is rational. It's logical. It makes sense. It's believable. Too often, I think, Christians want to check their brains in at the door, and let's just not think. There's that quaint little phrase, right? right the God said it. I believe it, that settles it. Which is all well and good, but I think it misses a whole lot. I think what, often, what people often mean by that is, I think I know what God said, and my interpretation is what I believe, and that settles it. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's entirely true. Um, I, I, I think God calls us to think. And I don't think that God gives us commands and puts stuff in the Bible that has no rational basis behind it. And so Paul seeks to persuade, but not only to persuade, but also to convince. Not just an appeal to the brain, but an appeal to the heart. A tug at the emotion, a conviction of sin, a call to repentance, a call to faith. And the result is that some believe and some didn't. And this is always the case. And Paul quotes from Isaiah and then says, the gospel of the good news of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, will go out to the Gentiles. Because you won't believe. And you know what? It's no surprise that in 10 years, 10 years after this, less than 10 years after this, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is no more, and there is no longer a temple to worship, worship at. But Jesus is our temple. And the church gathered is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't need a temple in Jerusalem anymore. What is it Paul is expounding and proclaiming? You'd expect for it to be that he's expounding and proclaiming the gospel. That's at the center, right? Surely that's what we want to get to. It's at the gospel that he's proclaiming. Except that Luke says he's proclaiming, and he says it twice in this chapter, the kingdom of God which is a word that's not used, or a phrase that's not used very often in the Old Testament, is not used very often in the book of Acts, just a couple of times in the book of Acts. It's quite popular in the Gospels, but it's a, it's a phrase that's hardly ever used in the book of Acts. It's not his usual phrase. But I think he's reserved it for this moment, because again, it's that idea of the kingdom of God at the heart of the empire. And in many ways, that's what this picture is, an expression of the kingdom of God, God's rule over the lives of God's people, God unleashing his blessing on the kingdoms of this world through his people, the church. But his kingdom usurping the kingdom of this world and turning the world right way up. And here's where we end. That very last verse. Paul preached this message of the kingdom in Rome for two years unhindered. And that's the last word in the Greek text, unhindered. Except that's not really the end of the book of Acts. That, that's kind of end, one, end of part one of the book of Acts. 
In some ways, you and I are living in Acts 29 because the story continues. We're no longer the Acts of the Apostles. We're now the Acts of the Church, the Acts of, the, of you and I, His disciples. Because the Gospel of the Kingdom is still going unhindered into the kingdoms of this world. And there are still people who need to hear it, and it will not be stopped. I read this story just a couple of weeks ago, um, that in, in, in about June, July this year, there was, there's a church uh, run by an expat in, um, in the safe side of Ukraine. Not that there is one anymore, but there was uh, earlier on, the safe side of Ukraine. And um, this church ended up quite often having some refugees from the other side coming in and out of the church. In one particular Sunday morning, the preacher noticed six young ladies sitting up front, um, clearly refugees. He goes to speak to them afterwards, and they confirm that, yes, they have just been bombed out of one of the other cities there. They've come to this town, and they arrived last night with nothing. They arrive at the hostel. They're nurses. They were nurses in the hospital there. They're, they're looking for work in the hospitals here to continue serving those who are being bombed and injured whatever by the war. They arrived at the hospital last night close to midnight with not very much at all. And one of the people in the hospital says, the place that you need to go to for help is that church over there. And so they said, and we're here. She said, they, they, they say, we have never been to a church before. We have never heard about this person, Jesus, before. Won't you tell us more? The gospel today still goes unhindered, even into the very worst places of the world. The acts of the apostles long ago finished, but the acts of the followers of Jesus continue. The acts of the Holy Spirit continue. And you and I, like Paul, are called to welcome who had ever come in, and to proclaim the gospel, and to do so boldly. And the kingdom of God will radiate from Rome to every nook and cranny of this planet. And nothing will hinder the work and nothing will stop it. And you are part of that work and you are part of that kingdom. And your acts, the things that you do, your acts of mercy and kindness and standing alongside those in need might not be recorded in Holy Scripture, but they will be recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And one day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've carried on the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story, this never-ending story, the story of your gospel that goes into all the world. Thank you that we are privileged to be part of this grand storyline. That you, because the gospel has been unhindered, you have called us out of our sinfulness, taken the burdens off our shoulders, shoulders and brought us into this kingdom. Lord, may we, may we be driven by your gospel, recognizing again our great need, your great love, your great gift that transforms us, transforms what we worship, who we love, and how we love, for the sake of your kingdom and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.